0: This message by Zach Varnell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Zach serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for being with us this morning. We're going to uh, continue our series today in the Minor Prophets, this morning turning to... The book of Amos. Now, if you need a Bible, we would love for everyone to have a Bible this morning. If you need a Bible and you don't have one, you can just raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you a Bible. You can take that home uh, for you after the meeting. But we're going to go to the book of Amos. If you need help, maybe open up to the middle, start going right. You'll pass Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. We're going to read the first two verses of the book of Amos and then we're going to jump to uh, chapter 2 verse 4 so let's read this together this is the word of God for us this morning the words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Go to chapter 2 verse 4. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept His statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Verse six, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who've been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, And who was as strong as the oaks? I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, And commanded the prophet, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place. As a cart full of sheaves presses down, flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, And he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Amos was sent by God from Judah to Israel to tell them, of God's judgment to come because of their pride. And yet, and yet, in His grace, it was a message that offered an opportunity for repentance. And I think what the Lord wants to do this morning as we look at this book is give us a fresh vision. I pray He does this. Gives us a fresh vision of our need for Him that we might be a humble, people who love and seek him. There's a Wall Street Journal article titled, Why the Old Look Down on the Young, and the author writes, ever since the Greeks, people have been complaining that the next generation is a disappointment. Maybe you feel the same way, I don't know, if you're old enough, that the next generation is a disappointment. Millennials, those born between uh, about 1980 and 2000, they've been widely considered to be the worst generation. Uh, According to BBC News, they are the most hated. According to Time magazine, there are actual stats that prove they're the worst generation, they claim. (laughs) Lazy, entitled narcissists. But in the Wall Street Journal article, it points out something interesting. Their point is, People have been saying the same kind of thing for at least 2,500 years. This is from a Roman poet in the first century B.C. The beardless youth does not foresee what is useful and squanders his money. Aristotle in the fourth century said this about young people. They think they know everything and are always quite sure about it. Every decade has quotes like this. Listen to this one. We defy anyone who goes about with his eyes open to deny that there is, as never before, an attitude on the part of young people which is best described as grossly thoughtless, rude, and utterly selfish. 1925. The point is the same kinds of things have been said about every generation. And you know who that includes. That, that's all of us. And, and I think that fits with a biblical worldview. Put what you think about millennials aside for a minute. To varying degrees, we are all entitled narcissists in different ways. It's because we all deal with pride in our lives. We all have an inflated, at times, an inflated view of our self-importance. If you don't think you struggle with pride in the form of entitlement, maybe just monitor yourself next time you're running late and run into a traffic jam or the next time you pull up to the gas station and you stop your car and you get out and you open up your nozzle and the thing's out of order. What happens in those moments? We all deal with pride in our lives. We all at times think we deserve better than what we have. That's why the book of Amos is for us this morning. God sent Amos to address the pride and entitlement of the nation of Israel. God's very people. And he sent Amos to pronounce God's coming judgment so that they would humble themselves and seek him. This book is about pride. It's about the dangers of pride. It's about how pride destroys, but More than that, so much more than that, this book is about our gracious, loving, merciful God who in the midst of a proud people, in the midst of a coming, deserved judgment, God invites His people to repent, to seek Him, and to live. And I think God wants to freshly humble us this morning Just just causing us to marvel at his grace. He's a gracious God. And we look at the book of Amos and we see the sin of Israel spelled out in this book. We should think, but for the grace of God, there go I. I think the main point of this book is God's merciful judgments humble us to know our need for him. And I pray that's the effect of our time this morning. We're going to look at the story of Amos. What did God send Amos to preach And why, and then along the way, see how it applies to our life. So, point one God is the judge of all. God is the judge of all. Chapter one, verse two the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Chapter three, verse eight the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? These are the, the bookends of the first sermon Amos preaches. God will be heard. This language, it's meant to startle us like a lion roaring over its prey. It's meant to cause the hairs on the back of our neck to stand. If you go to the zoo and see the lion exhibit, if they're not just laying down sleeping, sometimes they get close enough to the cage where you see how massive they actually are how massive their paws are. If they yawn, you see their jaw and their teeth. But to hear them roar? Trying to get attention. He roars from Jerusalem, the temple, the place where God dwells. It's a message that comes with authority and urgency. So it would have been a startling introduction. People would have been paying attention to Amos' message. God has something to say. Now the context of this book is one of prosperity. The kingdom was divided, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, but both were enjoying the most prosperous period since Solomon. Their governments were stable, their enemies seemed to be, appeared to be in decline, and in their minds, they assumed it's because, well, God's blessing us. We are the people of God. God was rewarding them. They felt entitled to it. They thought that that the great day of the Lord was near, the day when God would come and judge all the nations and exalt Israel to its rightful place. What they failed to realize is the great disconnect between their lives, the way they lived, and what it was that God actually valued. They were not God-honoring people as he, he makes very clear for us. They were self-indulgent. They had rejected the ways of God. So God roars through Amos to wake them up. It's a wake-up call. He preaches his first message in Bethel. Bethel was an important place in Israel's history, the place where Jacob saw his vision of the ladder coming down from heaven, the place where God covenanted with him. But after the kingdom split, Jeroboam, the king in Israel, set up a golden calf at Bethel. Set up a golden calf, an alternative place of worship to the temple in Jerusalem. Saying, you don't need to go down to Jerusalem to worship where God is. You could do it right here. See, I've set it up for you. It was worship on their own terms, in their own way, for their own ends. So God sent Amos there to preach his word. To them, Have you ever been on a Sunday morning listening to a sermon and, uh, and you have the thought, amen, that is a great point for that guy over there. I hope he's listening and paying attention because he needs to hear that and respond. Is he paying attention? Only to later in the sermon think, ah, me. This is to me, about me. There's something of what goes on during Amos 1st. Message. He begins by addressing all the nations around Israel. And he addresses why God's judgment is coming upon him. The refrain throughout is For three transgressions of so and so, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The point's not that they've sinned three or four times, the point is they've continued in their sin. God has been patient. God is slow to anger, but their sin was continual and unrepentant. And what God is judging these nations for is their cruelty towards people. They mistreated others made in the image of God. They broke basic laws of justice. They were overly cruel in their warfare and dealings with each other. They enslaved other people. They were disloyal even to those that they were in partnerships with. They mistreated their own people, particularly the vulnerable and the helpless. They were cruel. God cares about the mistreatment of people made in his image. He cares, and so he pronounces judgment upon them. And up until uh, verse three of chapter two, Amos' hearers would have been saying, yes, Lord, amen. Amen. Bring your judgments down. They would have been excited to hear about the punishment coming on all these other nations. Again, thinking about the day of the Lord. God's coming. He's gonna judge these other nations and exalt us and we will finally be where we belong. Later in the book, it actually says they they long for the day of the Lord to come. But Amos says, what? That's not gonna be a good day for you. You think that's going to be a good day? That is not a good day for you. That is a day of judgment on you. So starting in verse 4, what I read earlier, the tone changed. Because his attention turned to the people of God, he first speaks to Judah, verse 4, they have rejected the law of the Lord. And they have not kept his statutes. Verse 12, you commanded the prophets, the messengers of God, those who speak the word of God, you commanded them, you shall not prophesy. The point is, they had turned from the word of God. And in so doing, they were led astray by lies they believed. They were just as cruel and wicked as the nations that were godless around them. Verses 7 and 8 In chapter 2, paint a grim picture of Israel's wickedness. It's not just a list of sins, it's a picture of utter rejection of God. It's not just a rejection of the way of God or the word of God or his instruction about proper worship or, or gracious dealings with other people. It was a rejection of God himself. And God calls them out, they didn't see it coming. They were not expecting this. He's talking about us. They would have been shocked. They they thought that their heritage, that their religion, that their religious practices, that going through the motions, belonging to the nation of Israel, they thought those things exempted them from the judgment of God. But no way. In fact, verses 9 to 12 tell us it only made it worse because they rejected the very God who had rescued them out of Egypt, who had covenanted with them to be their God and make them his people. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God is the judge of all, yes, but especially of those who know him and reject him. Godless nations don't get a pass. I mean, Romans 1 tells us that their conscience bears witness. They know God exists. So they don't get a pass from his judgment, but neither do his people. I think there's application for us here. You know, their assumption was that their religion kept them safe, that as long as they practiced religion, they were in the clear, but God will not be mocked. He will not be used as some means to another end. He will not be used as some means to just make people feel good about themselves for being religious or to justify their sinful dealings with other people. He will not be mocked. He will judge those who profane his holy name. It's the wake-up call Amos brings to God's people. And where did they go wrong and how does it apply to us? What happened? They had lost God's word. They had abandoned what God says is good and true and right. And they decided to do things their own way. I think it's good just to pause a minute and ask, do we treasure the word? Do we love God's word are we eager to submit our lives to it one commentator on the book of Amos said when anything other than the word of God is given the supreme place so that we base our lives upon it and guide our lives by it then it becomes a lie and a source of lies they lost the word and so they just followed lies and became like the godless nations around them their worship wasn't about God it was about themselves so let's receive this Word this morning, this wake-up call to value and treasure the Word of God. Be grateful to know the Word, to have the Word. One of the, one of the worst judgments in this whole book is in chapter 8, verse 11, when God says a famine is coming, but it's not a famine of food or drink. It's going to be a famine of my Word Praise God that that famine ended when the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Sarah and I were walking downtown a few evenings ago. We just had a new boy, Daniel. We took him out and our two other girls. And we were just walking around and talking. And in our conversation, we, we were just very aware of the, just the constant uh, preaching of the culture around us the the lies that our world loves to celebrate what our culture celebrates and promotes it's everywhere and and as we were talking we were talking about raising our kids in the midst of this confusing time and at one point we both just started to we realized God brought it to mind and we just started thanking him oh but but we have the word so grateful to have the word to actually love the word to know the Word. We're not better than anyone else. God's had mercy on us. God softened our hearts and opened our eyes to actually value His Word. That's His doing. And our hearts grieve over those who don't know the truth and who live in lostness and the lies of our world. Makes us so grateful that God's given us his word. So let's heed the words of J.I. Packer who says, Let us then take our Bibles afresh and resolve by God's grace henceforth to make full use of them. Let us read them with reverence and humility, seeking the illumination of the Spirit. Let us meditate on them till our sight is clear and our souls are fed. Let us live in obedience to God's will as we find it revealed to us in Scripture. And the Bible will prove itself both a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Secondly, God's judgment is patient but deserved. In chapter 3, verse 9 through chapter 6, God now builds his argument as to why his judgment is coming. Chapter 5, in a few verses, verse 7, he says, You turn justice to wormwood. You cast down righteousness to the earth. Verse 10, you hate him who reproves. You abhor him who speaks the truth. Verse 11, you trample on the poor You exact taxes of grain from him. Verse 12, you afflict the righteous, you take bribes, you turn back the needy. Great injustices were happening in Israel. Yeah, they were enjoying economic prosperity in ways, but primarily among the elite. There were plenty of poor in Israel. And they had historically struggled financially, and so the rich were lending to them, but then exacting harshly from them dealing harshly with them, taking what little they had. And and the problem with it is it just, it was lived right in line with their religious practice. They looked at people and they saw things. Their lives did not line up with the heart of God, so it's in light of this God says he will punish them. Chapter 3, verse 11, Therefore thus says the Lord God, An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you. And your strongholds shall be plundered. It's the coming exile. He says mockingly in chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply your transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, which was against the law, and proclaim free will offerings, publish them, for so you love to do, O Israel, declares the Lord God. They loved to be religious, they, they loved to offer their sacrifice, but notice what's missing that there's no offer of sacrifice for sin. There's no acknowledgement of, of sin before a holy God, and this is the root of their hypocrisy. Another commentator says, Any religious practice without a sense of sin and a need for atonement for sin and forgiveness from God is hypocrisy and an offense both to God and man. It's the fruit of pride the danger of pride. So the Lord says in chapter 5, verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. These are devastating words. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. God hates hypocritical worship. And he exposes their hypocrisy by the testimony of their lives. Their worship, their worship of God, their relationship with God, it had no effect on their relationship with other people. It made no real difference in their lives. That's not what God wants for his people. What he wants instead is verse 24 of chapter 5, for justice to roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what the Lord calls out of the hearts of His people. More, that's what the Lord will do in the lives of His people. People who who humbly give themselves to following Him. He will transform our lives. That's what He will do. He'll transform how how we treat people. Transform how we spend our money and our time transform how we see and and think about and seek to care for those who are helpless and vulnerable. He will do that as we humble ourselves before him. A commentator again says, we cannot be right with God and wrong with man. We cannot be right with God unless what he is to us provides the pattern for what we are to others. I'll read that again. We cannot be right with God unless what He is to us, our relationship with Him horizontally, vertically, is the pattern for our relationship with one another. That has to be what's going on in our lives. Religion that doesn't produce righteousness is not real. It's fake. It's a going through the motions, but what's real is when our love for God changes how we love others. Now, now left in our sin... Apart from the mercy of God in our lives, we are unable. We are unable to love others truly and to love God more than ourselves. In our sin, our pride is the reason for injustices in the world. But when God calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, when he gives us the gift of faith in our Savior Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, when we are compelled by his amazing love for us to save us, not only do we love God, we begin to love what he loves. And I think that's the application for us here. We're called to love what God loves, justice, pursuing justice in our lives, in our dealings with other people, in in the way we do business, in the way we treat our neighbors, in the way we work at our jobs, in the way we pay our bills, in the way we interact with different authorities in our lives, we should seek and want to honor God by loving and pursuing what He loves, justice, righteousness. In fact, we will. We will love these things because he'll do it in our lives. It's the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that despite our sin and the just judgment, the very just judgment our sin deserves, God has made a way for us to be forgiven. The judgment our sin deserves ultimately fell fully on Christ who bore it all that we might be reconciled to God. That's the good news. That's what the Lord offers us to believe in, to repent of sin, turn from sin, and believe in the gospel. And amazingly, in the book of Amos, his just judgments, they do not come apart from appeals to repentance. That's what he's doing in chapter 4. He sends all these difficult circumstances into the lives of his people to humble them and yet the sad refrain over and over, yet they did not return to me, declares the Lord. You did not return to me. They were characterized by deliberate unrepentance. And so God says, in chapter 6, verse 8, I abhor the pride of Jacob. You know, the, the absence of repentance, the absence of repentance is the death of true fellowship with God. They were busy being religious, going through the motions, seeking to look like something, but God was busy giving them opportunities to repent. Repentance is a gift. Listen, if you have enjoyed the fruit of repentance in your life. That is absolutely the grace of God. It's his mercy to you. It's his work. We should be so encouraged by that. It's the grace of God. May God never stop being busy with us, convicting us of our sin, giving us opportunities to repent, calling us back into fellowship with him even when we sin. There was a time in my life when a variety of, because of a few different circumstances, I was just very discouraged, reviewing everything I had done wrong, uh, thinking of how terrible of a person I was, thinking I had, you know, no hope for growing and and changing or being different. I was very self-focused, discouraged, and a good friend called me because he knew what was going on, just to check on me, and he asked how I was doing, and I told him that I was discouraged. And he said, Zach, this is an older, wiser friend. Zach, if I got discouraged every time I messed up, I'd be a pretty miserable person. He said, What I've learned how to do is repent. I've learned how to repent. You got to learn to be good at repenting. Go to Christ, trust him for the forgiveness of your sin and the grace to grow and change and put sin to death. It was a pivotal moment for me, the gift of repentance, the gift of conviction that God gives us by His Spirit. So let's be people who don't hide or excuse our sin. And let's also don't be those who wallow in discouragement when we sin because of the finished, sufficient, perfect work of Christ on our behalf. Let's be good at repenting trusting in him for forgiveness and righteousness and life. Lastly, point three, God's judgment is not without hope. Yes, the Lord God is the judge of all. Yes, all people deserve the righteous judgments that he pronounces, but God's judgments are full of hope for the humble. The very fact that God sends Amos to this wayward people, it's evidence of his mercy. He didn't just, he didn't just send the, the, the uh, punishment that they deserved. He didn't just send that. He sent Amos to warn them, to tell them, and appeal to them to repent. Chapter 5, verse 14 says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. What an offer in the midst of this. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you've said. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of of Joseph. You know what? He was. He is gracious. That's who our God is. Now, yes, the exile came. Yes, Israel remained unrepentant, and Assyria came and removed them from the land. But in chapter 7 and 9, God promises to keep a remnant. He will not totally destroy. He will not wipe his people out completely. He uses his covenant name in these chapters over and over again. Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant name that he revealed to his people when he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. They belong to him. The covenant name reminded them they belong to him. And if they belong to him, there's always hope. The book ends with with these verses in chapter 9, 11 to 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The whole book ends climatically with those words the Lord your God he will do it he will accomplish his gracious purposes nothing can stay his hand in fact in in Acts 15 James quotes Amos 9 and he uses Amos 9 to say that the rebuilding of God's people The bringing of God's people back from the exile, it is happening now as the gospel goes to all the nations. So here we are today, this morning, enjoying the fruit and living in the good of God's faithfulness to His promises. His judgment came, His people were sent into exile. But that exile pointed to another day of wrath to come. A day when all the full wrath of God for our sin and the sin of his people through the ages was poured out not on a nation but on his only son. Jesus ended the exile because he suffered for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us back to God. That's where Amos takes us. There's no life outside of God. We cannot hide behind religious practices. They are meaningless if they don't come from a heart that is transformed by God's grace. What the Lord invites us to is something so much better. Humbling ourselves, seeking him, finding life in his name. You know, his wrath would be just to let his people go. No warnings, no appeals, just let him go. Let us go in our sin. But his mercy is to open our eyes, to see our great need for him and to call us back to himself that we might humble ourselves, repent, turn from our sin and find life in our gracious Lord and maker. May he give us that grace to worship him in genuine faith and love for who he is, to cling to his word, to joyfully repent of our sin and to live in the good of his promises and his power for all of our lives. Let's pray. Father, there is no one like you. There's no one like you in your greatness and your glory. And we want our lives, Lord, to reflect you. We want our lives to give you glory. We want our lives to honor you. So help us, Lord, convict us of ways we fall short. Father, convict us of our sin in our hearts, the pride in our hearts. Lord, convict us all so that we might turn from it and love you and worship you and trust in you and walk with you in a deeper, better way. We pray for that, Lord. Thank you for the gift of your wake-up calls. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of your spirit that is with us. Most of all, Lord, thank you for the gift of your Son, whom you sent to take our place under your righteous and just judgment for our sin. Father, we are doing so much better than we deserve. So we give you all the glory and thanksgiving in Jesus' name, amen.